This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to the Thompson Coburn podcast series, Talking Pop Health. I'm Eric Tower, a healthcare transactional attorney at Thompson Coburn. Our last speaker was Deborah Geisler, founder and principal at Activate Healthcare, a dynamic company aimed at transforming healthcare delivery through on-site and near-site primary care clinics. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Mike Engelhart, Senior Vice President of Medical Groups and Ambulatory Strategy at Trinity Healthcare. Mike has built his career around leading acute care and medical group transformational strategies in establishing clinical alliances and strategic partnerships by fostering collaboration to create highly integrated models of care. The road to integrated care and population health care has a lot of bumps, and I'm excited to hear what Mike can tell us about that journey. Mike, welcome to Talking Pop Health. Why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about your career? Well, first of all, it's good to be back um, with you, Eric, and uh, happy to be here to uh, have a conversation on your podcast. Um, a little bit about myself. I've been in healthcare for 25 years. Actually came into healthcare through the revenue cycle side of the business. I worked for a subsidiary of Rush, a company called Arc Venture. So I really learned healthcare from the, the business office forward, how you bill, how you charge. Uh, from there, I was recruited to work at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. That was a uh, wonderful experience. I was with them for just shy of five years, and I did a lot of uh, turnarounds, strategic planning, both on the hospital and the medical group side. Um, and uh, learned a lot, and so worked for some really good partners at PricewaterhouseCoopers, and uh, got a phone call um, to uh, join Advocate Healthcare. And at Advocate Healthcare, they were at uh, a point where they were looking to spend less on consultant and bring in some people with uh, revenue cycle background um, and operational experience, and uh, that's what brought me to uh, Advocate, and I worked for Advocate for almost 12 years. I had a stint away where I worked for the uh, Sisters of St. Francis, now called Franciscan Alliance, uh, returned to Advocate. And then uh, my last tour of duty with Advocate is really when I got into population health, which I imagine is where we'll spend a fair amount of our time working for Dr. Sachs and Advocate Physician Partners. Um, after um, serving in that capacity for just shy of three years, I was recruited to be the CEO of Presence Health. And uh, that was a uh, financial turnaround and we were able to successfully uh, merge presence into Amita Health in the Chicago market. And then from there, I took a little bit of time off and was recruited to uh, work for uh, Trinity Health, uh, focused on uh, medical group practice, total cost of care, and ambulatory strategy. And so been with uh, Trinity for just over a year. So uh, before we go too deep, you know, why should anyone be concerned about population health care? You know, it's interesting. This conversation continues um, every single year about why we need to make a change. And I, I think it really just comes down to just common sense. The amount of money that we're spending as a society, the United States, um, as a percentage of our gross domestic product, I think it's north of 18 or 19 percent. And if nothing changes in a meaningful way, it'll eclipse uh, 23 or 24 over the next 10 years. It's just on a 
just on a, a shot that's going to take off. And so I just think as a society, we have to come to some type of understanding as to what does good care look like and how do we have to change the model in order to make it sustainable and actually more impactful and uh, try to address things earlier on when it's less costly and actually affords an individual to have a better quality of life. So I think it's a... Uh, it's one of the big threats against the United States if we don't come to some understanding of how we change the model. I think it's um, the current model is not really meeting the needs of society. And uh, I think it's just a matter of time before we really meaningfully move to the next level of population health. So we had Lee Sachs on here, who obviously you're well acquainted with. And he was with a system that had a significant presence in a particular metropolitan area. We also had Deb Geisler, who is doing some pretty fun stuff through Activate Health in the workplace. Uh, to me, Trinity seems distinct insofar as it has a, a much broader presence in a number of geographies, but maybe not the same market position um, or the same interrelationship with particular employers. Uh, can you Do you want to just address that a little bit? Sure. Um, just a little bit of a <clears throat> thumbprint for Trinity. Trinity is in 22 states. We have 95 hospitals and north of 7,000 employed physicians, clinicians uh, that are part of our portfolio. And so there are a couple of markets where we have critical mass. I think of Michigan, we've got some um, sizable footprint, Columbus, New England. But you're right, it, unlike um, Advocate, who's based in Chicago, where we had uh, real market presence when I was working, when we were working for Advocate and working with Dr. Sachs, it we're a disruptor, but not able to tip a market. And so what Trinity's philosophy has been, and it started under uh, Dr. Rick Gilfellan, who had um, time at uh, Geisinger and worked for the government. We were early adopters at Trinity of all of the different um, CMS programs. And so um, we felt that it was really aligned with our mission to really treat um, the wholeness of an individual. And as a result, um, Trinity has been heavily involved in every single marketplace, taking on risk, total cost of care contracts, and all the CMS programs. We also have a very successful Medicare Advantage plan that's based out of Columbus. That's also something that we see as a um, an asset, and we're bringing it into other states because we believe Medicare Advantage is the right model, and it's um, something that we think we can excel at. So have you managed to, to leverage MA to, to get insights that allow you to take full, are you taking full capitation? Or are we talking capitation on part B? A little bit of both, but it's probably more on B. Yes, I think, I think what we've been able to learn from our medical product is how we need to reposition our investments and how we think about uh, patient flow and whether or not someone should be sitting in observation, what the follow-ups look like. So I think we've learned a great deal from our MA plan, and we think it's um, part of our success going forward. So we've done a little bit of both. We're probably more in the, the part B, but we're interested in, in approaching more employers and having those conversations because we believe um, employers also have to be scratching their heads saying, when is this gonna stop? The increases are just not uh, sustainable for them as well. Well, that's certainly what Deb Geisler said. Um, so as you're flipping the switch uh, from traditional medicine to population health, how do you accommodate the fact that if you 
get a lot of a lot fewer patients and you keep patients healthy, you've got a lot of bricks and mortar that are sitting empty, and you're paying, and you're at least servicing those bonds. Uh, you know what? How, how do you get yourself ready for that transition, or are you there yet, or are you in process? What's interesting about Trinity is that every one of the markets will move at their own pace, but directionally, I think everyone's moving towards total cost of care. I think the velocity you can take on some of these opportunities is directly related to what's the market going to allow, both from a payer-employer perspective. And then, you're right, your assets, the hospitals that we were all grown up, that we built our enterprises around, really become a challenge as to what should a dollar go for on a go-forward basis? Should it be more ambulatory, IT, um, online type of tools? that is directly proportional, I think, to how much upside you have. That's what was so interesting about our advocate experience. We had critical mass, and we were able to, it didn't feel great at the time, but we were able to work with the hospital presidents about, it wasn't heads and beds, it was more efficiency in the way that we ran our hospitals that was going to pay, um, was the right thing to do for the patient and was um, a differentiator so we could accelerate or slow down as the market dictated um, how we would take on total cost of care contracts. So at Trinity, have you noticed any cultural issues about getting people to to adopt this mindset, um, both you know within your physician presence as well as maybe in the management? I, I think that um, Trinity has done an excellent job, and they've been on this journey for five plus years. So I, I probably have come into this a little bit later, but I think it's been so embedded into the way that we talk about healthcare that maybe four or five years ago it was more of a painful conversation. But now I think that it's accepted, and I think what you're seeing is that the hospital presidents now are far more engaged in um, the PHO and alignment with both the employed and the independent physicians about what does good care look like. I think there's a level of knowledge that hospital presidents in the past would really not focus on. Now they really start to intimately understand how contracts are set up and how we truly are compensated. And that helps them to think in a more holistic manner about where is the best place for the care to be provided and where do we win and lose and where's uh, the best care going to be provided. So I think there's been a maturation. It's not to say it's not painful. What's painful, and we experienced this in Chicago, and I experienced it personally when I was running Presence, when you're in a marketplace like Chicago where there are too many beds and you can't move into a total cost of care environment, either because you don't have the doctors or the contracts, that becomes really painful because here you've got, on paper, a licensed 225-bed hospital that really, truly is running at 125. You've got fixed cost depreciation. You've got to keep putting money back into the hospital when the reality is, in certain circumstances, like in a market like Chicago, the better solution would be to move towards an ambulatory platform and focus on the two or three illnesses that affect the consumers, the patients in a marketplace. That, to me, is more painful because there doesn't feel like there's a solution. And sometimes we make this such a political process about hospitals when really it's about caring for patients where they need to be cared for. It sounds to me like you're describing a um, 
service area model uh, of providing care as compared to a hospital-centric yeah. and then a separate ambulatory. I, I think that's right. I, what we're trying to do at Trinity is really use our medical group and our SIN, the clinically integrated network, and our physicians to be uh, front and center. The hospital will always play a role, but we are extraordinarily cautious about building new hospitals. We really believe that um, more and more of our care needs to be ambulatory, and we will lead with our physicians and open up more access. I think that's going to be how Trinity will succeed, um, and any good healthcare system is going to um, have that balanced portfolio. You're describing a very judicious building process as far as whether you're willing willing to build new hospitals. But, you know, do you think patients are willing to travel to centers of excellence? Have you considered those? Uh, you know, they could reduce costs in theory or, or do patients want care in their community? How do you approach that? I'll use right now I'm serving as the interim CEO in uh, Columbus uh, for Mount Carmel, which is part of the Trinity family. And Columbus is an interesting marketplace because it's got three really good health systems. You got Ohio State, Ohio Health, and Mount Carmel. And I think what we're starting to come to conclusion is I'm not I think we're gonna have to get far more um, judicious about service lines. I don't think it makes sense to have um, open hearts in all of our hospitals. I think we have to really be thoughtful about um, as we think about these programs on a go-forward basis, I think that is not an unreasonable expectation that someone will make that that commute, that travel for certain subspecialty expertise. I do believe that primary care and most services needs to get as close as possible to the consumer, and hospitals are generally not the best way to access the um, patients. I do believe patients will travel for some of the subspecialty work, but they want the convenience of their primary care and some of the basic care as close as possible to their home. And they want access in a way that 15 years ago, we wouldn't have dreamt of, but our kids now being in college, I can barely talk my daughter into getting a primary care physician. They think that everything should be done in real time, just like a bank transaction is done right now. Well, uh, what do you think about the notion of partnering with non-owned health systems to create geographic coverage in particular markets. Do you think that that would work? Because there are some out there saying, gee, all this consolidation, it only drives up costs, but you need to have market coverage in order to offer some of these plans, don't you? Yeah, I I think um, to make sure that I understand your question, I don't think I think there are very few health systems that can build and own everything underneath their portfolio. So I think out of necessity, you have to figure out who your partners are to fill in the gaps. Um, Sometimes that's a one-off transaction and sometimes they're part of your contract, total cost of care contract, because you believe they're part of the secret sauce. You know, there's some that will use Medicare Advantage, dual eligible medical home strategy, and they'll use third parties and others will build that. Some will um, use online services for uh, patients that want to be able to uh, call their doctor in the middle of the night and determine whether or not they need to see um, come into the emergency room or not. Some of that will be in-source and some of that will be through strategic partnership. I don't believe most health systems can go it alone. I think we're always going to have to be open to partnering, learning from others. And let's be clear, private equity has moved in a more aggressive fashion than I would have imagined three years ago. 
So let's assume I'm the CEO of St. Elsewhere Health System. Okay. And I want to partner with St. Nowhere. Yes. We're taking full cap and then splitting it probably based on unit-based services, correct? Do you think that'll work? Because it, it kind of seems like a, uh, how would you structure that? Here's, I, I think there's a step before that. What I've seen in this market, in the Chicagoland market and other markets is the payers are inclined to try and orchestrate a network, but allow the pods to live on their own. So if you were in um, a metropolitan area and you wanted to have coverage and we're missing some pieces of the puzzle, what the payers have always done is allowed and they've pieced together a market. I think what's happening now is the providers are going to them and saying, right now, I'm not sure we can commingle our risk because I'm more mature than they are, but I'd like a three-year glide path so that we can eventually then all take the risk. But I can't do it day one because I've been taking risk and you haven't, but you know you've got to do it. But we will afford uh, the payer the opportunity to offer a solution and then meet up in the road in three years. I do believe that is in fact happening in certain markets where people can find that frenemy, I like to use that term frenemy um, strategy. I think that that is a very doable thing. And it's actually, the payers like it because the payers have always been anti-consolidation. They've always viewed it as they don't want to afford the providers more leverage. So let's assume there's a patient in my geography and they're attributed, and maybe we'll cover attribution in a, in a couple seconds because that is a term of art. Yeah. But they're attributed to me at St. Elsewhere, but then they end up at St. Nowhere. Right. What stops St. Nowhere from running all the tests all over again and then just you know getting a lot of money and then saying, well, this isn't my patient and just discharging them and you know letting me try to f- pick up the pieces? So there's two ways you can avoid it. One, if you were on the same platform, you could have rules of the road. And so the big player right now is um, is Epic. And if you use the tool to its full extent, there's an ability to share that information. That's number one. But the other way to handle it is you use a third party to assist you in the management, the care management, the disease management, the attribution. And so when that happens, look at it as a impartial third party only interested in doing the right thing for the patient and in the greater interest of the total agreement, they'll be able to say, you don't need to run these additional tests. We've already got them. We'll share them with you. Furthermore, the rules of the road would require that the patient get returned back to uh, their uh, attributed, usually primary care physician. So the way this is working right now, and I think Blue Cross Blue Shield might be doing this right now, they've got a, a third-party company that is standing up this type of solution where they're, they're essentially what we did when we were at Advocate. They are the care management, claims processor, disease management, outsource team that helps to band a group of generally independent hospitals or PHOs together. That's how you would be able to um, have the rules of the road. Well, I think we both agree, though, insurers are notoriously poor at managing care. They, they have a model, and their model serves them well. Total cost of care might not be, I can't speak to United Health. Maybe they're stronger as a result of everything that's been built up alongside them through Optum. But you're right. The traditional um, payer is a little too bureaucratic and still too inpatient-centric. I think the ones that will be, succeed usually have a third party 
that they're investors in, and they allow them to work outside of the normal day-to-day of the bureaucracy of a traditional payer. Those are the ones that are more agile. I would agree with you. You've stood up this health plan. What do you think is necessary to truly partner with the physicians, or do you think it's necessary? Can a, can a system just do this and, and dictate what happens, or how do you see that process working? No, I, I, I firmly believe physicians, um, all the clinicians need to be at the table, but the physicians most certainly, advanced practitioners as well, because ultimately I believe that all the key decisions are made between the patient and the physician. And if the physicians are not on board, don't understand what's being measured, what does success look like, have a voice, it it falls down. You can incentivize people and that does work, but if they're not provided constant feedback and additional assistance to call forward their more challenging patients, then the nature of healthcare is transactional and they end up worrying about who's in the lobby and who else do I need to see before I call it a day. When what we're really talking about is it's not only those patients, there is this bolus of five to 10% of your attributed lives that are really risky and we need to do something special and different. If you educate and partner with physicians and align incentives, I think it becomes really powerful and I've seen nothing but good things come of that. But you can't break the trust, they've gotta be at the table and it's gotta be clear rules of engagement. So we've discussed this notion of attribution. Why don't you just introduce the idea? Sure, attribution as I define it um, and as I've been taught is how payers, providers take a uh, individual, a patient, and determine whether or not they're tied to Dr. A or Dr. B. And usually rule of thumb is they look at how many interactions you've had with the patient over usually an 18 month or two year time period. And that's how attribution, so you might, you could have shifted from one end of town to another. You could have used uh, an internal medicine physician and then because of cardiac problems, you're spending more time with a cardiologist. That will, those events and those frequencies of visits will determine. And so it's almost an actuarial way of assigning risk from a patient level to a doctor level. It's not pristine, and there's always patients moving in and out, but it's the best tool we have. And uh, it's generally been accepted as the way that we can best manage um, and really own the lives that are attached to us. So that's attribution. How many visits? who has the seniority of the relationship, and it's usually viewed over an 18-month period of time. Okay. Well, you talk a lot about partnering with physicians and giving them a voice. What are some specific steps or actions you've seen to make sure that you you can accomplish that? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, doctors, we will listen to you. Um, Maybe a little harder to actually let them feel like they truly have a voice. I think it goes to how you set up your governance. Most working physicians have time and they're engaged in this portion of their work life, but they cannot spend 40 hours a week like administrators can looking at data and driving it. They, I, If I'm a physician, I wanna know how are we getting paid? What are the measures of success? How do I determine if someone goes out of bounds? What are the rules of how we're going to try and work with the physician to bring them back on course? Because this is a different mentality. It is not, I just go it alone. You actually sink or swim. 
based upon the physicians that are inside um, your pool, whether it's a PHO or whatever term we're going to use. So there's got to be clear understanding of how information will flow, what does success look like. And one of the things that I think we learned was if you leave it up to the payers, they will have no less than 50 different measurements. And that is just too much for a small two or three person independent physician group to manage. It's just painful. So there needs to be kind of a true north as to how we measure and what does success look like. And you don't get that when you try to negotiate on your own. But if you come together, you're able to get a consistency in what success looks like and how we measure it and what resources we can bring to bear. So are those measures only for your primaries or do you also include those for your specialists or is that a progression? I, it, it, attribution is, sits heavier with the primary. So the primary, and I, I lump in there cardiologists because at end of life, cardiologists play a critical role. But no, specialists do have measures. They have far less than primary, but you need them to be at the table um, because they play a critical role. If you're in a total cost of care contract, um, let's just talk about this now. In January, CMS is opening up knees and I think hips to if you're in a good, if you're physically fit and capable of being cared for, you're going to see... My arc estimates are between 10 and 40% of the uh, knees are potentially going to move out next calendar year. Because, you know, as, as these baby boomers are going in for their second knee or their first knee, and they're in good health, an ASC offers a wonderful alternative. And so this is really going to be an interesting issue as to where care is going to be provided. And then it's just the overall clinical effectiveness. You need to measure uh, readmissions any type of um, cases that go south, there needs to be a profile for the specialist to see who's performing the best care at the lowest cost. So it's the triple aim all over again. So you've, you've mentioned uh, cardiology, you've mentioned ortho. Yeah, what other areas do you think are sort of ripe, um, I might call it low-hanging fruit, for someone who's looking to get their arms around total cost of care? I think oncology has a role to play. I think there's a lot more that we can be doing as far as um, caring for um, patients as far as infusion and preventing emergency room visits. Endocrinology is a big issue. Pulmonary, respiratory, those are the areas. You almost, the way to look at it is, look at your readmissions, look at your population, and we all have data. And every market's a little bit different, but there's usually four or five that are the same. And if you look at it from our perspective and say, if I was the payer and had to spread a dollar, where would I spend my dollar and where could I impact patients' care so that they stayed healthier longer at a lower cost? I think what you'll find is the primary is the gatekeeper, cardiology is close, and then you go into, we could do a hell of a lot better when it comes to ortho care, uh, preventative, so there's therapies and all of those, there's oncology, and then there's the pulmonary areas that I think traditionally are areas where we could be more proactive and uh, impactful on the total cost of care. So if you're getting ready for a sort of a total cost of care world, what advice would you have to some of these systems that have been buying physician practices and, and other ambulatory assets and flipping them to provider-based? I would start for, um, it takes, you can't turn on a dime how you compensate your physicians. 
So one of the first things you need to do is to start a transition to inserting measures into how you compensate them. So it can't be 100% about volume. You need to also be measuring and putting 10, 20, 30. You really will have graduated when you're up to 40 or 50% of their comp is tied to cost and outcome as defined by all of the national uh, benchmarks. And so you can, you've got to start this transition so it's not as painful. When you flip to um, an ambulatory status and move away from provider-based, unfortunately, hospitals tend to over-engineer all of our ambulatory sites. And when we have run ASCs, we don't run them as efficiently. So the other issue is those have to go to a whole nother level of efficiency. Um, because people are now shopping, and you, you've seen it. I think it was in uh, last week's uh, Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. United is aggressively going to push, continue to push towards ASCs. And so, um, and all outpatient, they're looking for the lowest cost. So they're incentivizing their uh, patients to really pause before they go their traditional model. And so I think the way to look at it is, are you set for success in your cost structure and your reimbursement to your doctors? Do Are they seeing information on a monthly basis about how they're performing? I think that's so important because you just can't jump off the couch and, and run this marathon. You really got to ramp up. And I think everyone is. But if you're going to go fast over a short period of time, then you really have to paint the picture for your uh, your stakeholders, which most certainly are the physicians. Yeah, well, the, the provider base is obviously, you know, a cause to concern. Or yes. Maybe the um, 340B programs. Um. The 340B, our opinion on the 340B, I knew enough when I was in the Chicago market. It was critical. I think it still has a role to play, and I think it's going to land in a decent spot. We were nervous six months ago about were they going to completely wipe it out. I just think... It, it still serves a purpose for those that are um, caring for the underserved in some really challenging marketplaces, and it's not something that can be pulled out overnight. So um, 340B is going to get, um, and it already is going through a haircut, but I think it's going to land in a reasonable, that's our early read right now, that it'll land in an acceptable spot and not just go completely away, because there's no way we would backfill most most health systems that have Medicaid in a meaningful way, north of 12%, are dabbling with 340B. And there comes a point where it becomes a core component of how you provide care. Mike, the patient is important. Is there anything that Trinity is doing that's particularly interesting around patient engagement or coordinating care? You know, these systems, even when they're well run, there's so many different moving pieces. Keeping all that stuff together is, well, it's a full-time job for, for anyone, let alone someone who's uh, maybe sick or having uh, other issues at home to worry about. I think there's two things that um, Trinity is really trying to move forward on, and that is um, really viewing um, the patient more as a member, um, meaning um, just a long-term relationship. And, and at the core of that is how do you meet the patient, the consumer, in the most convenient um, manner. And so we're really pressing the envelope hard on uh, virtual visits and really think that primary care, a lot can be done um, with technology today. And an area where we've seen some tremendous success is something we call um, hospital at home. And we have a virtual care center 
this is really focused more towards the um, the Medicare patient, and um, we're in um, I think it's 19 of our 22 states. Um, we've served over 30,000 patients on any given day. We have north of 5,000 patients that we are monitoring. And what it looks like is um, they have a tablet, and the tablet allows us to um, have virtual visits 24 by 7 with either a nurse practitioner or a physician, and uh, the impact has been profound. We have cut readmission in half for this population, and uh, it really feels right, and uh, we're getting tremendous feedback from the physicians, the communities, the plans are loving it. And so I think it's... um, the beginning of something um, that Trinity wants to focus on, it really um, could open itself up and, and be a catalyst for other opportunities. Um, again, going back towards that primary care virtual visit um, makes a lot of sense. The satisfaction that we're seeing, 96%, 80, 98% would um, re-recommend. It's great for heart failure patients. You think about making sure that they're taking their meds and they're getting weighed. Um, the savings are outstanding, um, and actually the range of patients has been as young as 25 and as old as 103. So it speaks to the fact that people are more and more technology um, savvy, and uh, the iPad or some type of uh, tablet really works so that they can interface and get simple questions to tough questions answered. That married with a home health division, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so. Um, it works well for us. We're proud of it, and it's something that we're really trying to scale across all of Trinity. So let me drag you back to this iPad. Can you get vitals? I mean, how's that working? Yes, you can get all the vitals. It's it's literally, it looks like an intercom, and it has all of the capabilities. Every week, somebody's turning out something new, but we've selected this technology. The iPad is low cost. It's not an iPad. It's something a little bit more generic, but... Um, it has its own um, ability to connect, and so you can see the person on the other side, and uh, all of your meds are documented, and your vitals are also. And so if they see something that is um, uh, deviating, then they'll make an outbound reach. What's also been cool is that they're able to do three ways with uh, other family members. So think of your mom is um, still living in Texas, but you're in Chicago. You could literally do a three-way conversation with the provider. We're excited about um, those types of things. That's interesting. Is that something you've created or you just bought off the shelf? Or I think it was a hybrid. I, you know what? I'll, I'll get back to you on that. I don't know all the details. I was pleasantly surprised as I've come up to speed on it's kind of a unique differentiator that I think is really powerful. So <clears throat> it sounds like a great program. How is that bending the cost curve? Is there any hard data or is this more, you know, we're at the early phases and we've seen what we hope are good results? No, um, we've seen some good results. I think the uh, sample size, we'd like to grow it. Um, but we've seen a reduction of readmissions by literally in half compared to the static traditional home health visit. It just, the connectivity is so important and the ability to make sure people are taking their meds. It just makes sense. Anybody that's looking at readmissions, the number one culprit is you're not taking your meds. You don't get the order filled and you're not taking your meds. So if you know, A, the order's been filled and B, now I can track. And usually people, it's not to say people don't veer off course, but if you can get people taking their meds through the first week, it becomes a habit. And that, that is extraordinarily powerful when you're dealing with someone with a chronic illness. What are you most proud of in your career? 
I've had a unique career and I've had an opportunity to, with every promotion or, or um, move in my career, take on more responsibility. Um, I think two things really stand out. I'm, I'm really, really proud of the work that I did when I was at Advocate working for Dr. Sachs and uh, Advocate Physician Partners. I think Dr. Sachs is known by many, but probably not known by enough people, really, um, uh, I think was a thought leader and ahead of the curve by a, a significant distance when it came to the way we provide care has got to change. And so what he was thinking about was in advance of Obamacare and some of the things that we started here in the Chicago market. And I was able to jump in probably in the third or fourth inning and really work with him to take our engagement with our physicians and our performance to another level. And that was extremely exciting. And I think um, rightfully so, um, Advocate and Dr. Sachs and uh, Jim Scogsberg, you know, received a lot of credit for their work. Um, so that was powerful. And I think that was a lesson in creating on the fly, meaning we were sitting down and having conversations with payers where not all the rules were defined. We were trying to balance a legacy heavy bricks and mortar model to where we thought the market was going. And sometimes you get caught in your conversations in the hallway and you don't realize what's your impact you're having on the, the patient, the community, and what impact is it having in the overall market? And I think only until I got away from that did I appreciate how we had differentiated ourselves. And so that was some really interesting time to work um, with that team, very talented team. And then the second was, um, from there I was asked to go over to Presence and, you know, a faith-based, at the time, the largest Catholic health system and in, in uh, with 12 hospitals and, God, I think we were north of 25 different um, skilled nursing and long-term housing solutions. You know, it, w- it was a financial turnaround and it was one that we we worked extraordinarily hard in a short period of time to stabilize um, a Catholic health system that really was totally focused on the mission, but had stubbed its toe. And I believe we were able to stabilize it and then successfully transition it to a larger um, Catholic health system that I think will give it a chance to uh, continue to serve their communities here in the Chicago market for years to come. So those are two that um, I feel good about, that uh, I felt I made a difference. And frankly, while it was stressful and challenging, I look back now and with fondness of uh, what we were able to accomplish um, as a team. So what do you see happening if the Affordable Care Act is repealed? You know, the Affordable Care Act, that conversation is, I think, directly tied to the politics that we're living with right now, right? So I believe if it's repealed, I don't think people will be, I think you're still rewarded for viewing the world through this lens. Meaning, I think your capital dollars, I think your engagement with your colleagues, your associates, your staff, your physicians, I think that draws you closer. And while you might not be making as much money if it was to completely be repealed, I believe that eventually the commercial, the employer, are going to have to push hard on this issue. And so I think being efficient and responding to the consumer and working closely to physicians and being a good steward wins in almost any model. You just might not move as fast. You might slow down a little bit. You might not be willing to make certain bets um, that you would have otherwise if you felt like we were continuing to move down this path. So what do you think the future holds? So as it pertains to the politics, I think this is probably one of the more unique times. I think we will all look back five and 10 years from now and say, 
do you remember that time period when um, the president was in office and what used to be an event that would gobble up months of time are happening on a daily basis? It's a velocity that I've never seen before. Tell me who's going to be in the White House. Tell me who's going to have control of the Senate. And I'll tell you, you know, where things are going to move. I am concerned that we have no place in the middle and um, that middle the middle of the road, Democrat or Republican has uh, fallen off uh, the map. And I think that that's I think that's dangerous for society. And I think that when the pendulum swings so far from one side to the other, I don't think that's healthy. And I think it makes things so adversarial. I would hope that we would find more middle ground. And there just isn't right now the temperature for that, unfortunately. So, Mike, we've talked about attribution uh, and getting data. And then how do you figure out what to do with all this data and where do you get it? Yeah, you know, I, I think that this is really um, the secret sauce. So the the key elements that anyone would want is, one, obviously the demographic information for a patient. You want lab information. You want claims information. If you take those ingredients, claim, lab, patient information, um, and you weave it together, you start to build profiles for patients. And that allows you to really start to segment the population. So if historically we look at patients through kind of a transactional model, this is where you start to build uh, basically a map of the actual profile of all of your patients and you're able to identify those that are of the most serious concern. You know, actually um, kind of going back into our past, we, um, when I was with Advocate um, and APP in particular, I worked with Dr. Siki, uh, Rishi Sika, excuse me, and uh, Dr. Sachs. And we did something kind of cool with Cerner, and that was we built a disease registry. Because at the time, Chicago was a very, there were just a ton of different EMRs. And what we were able to do was extract the key information out and sit this disease registry on top of it. And that really helped us to profile and identify patients who had not been seen that had comorbidities and past um, visits that really warranted us to apply different resources to engage that patient. And so a disease registry is really the byproduct of aggregating all of the information. Now, the Cerners and the Epics of the world have that built into it. And if you're in an ecosphere where you're sitting primarily on the same platform, that information is quite powerful and flows. And uh, both Epic and Cerner have those tools. But at the time, this was, uh, gosh, this was five years ago, six years ago, it really helped us to move the performance on total cost of care. And we were really moving the dial on some of the sickest patients because we leveraged all of this information and gave it to the physicians and the care managers. And this again goes back to the conversation, well, what does this mean for the physician? When you sit down with the physician and you show them this information about 10 of their patients, it's it really draws them in and they know that they need to do something different. And when you feed that information to the physicians, with them you can come up with a care management plan and that's where we really um, hit the accelerator. And I give a lot of credit to uh, Dr. Sika, Risha, Rishi, and uh, also uh, Dr. Sachs. And we had a great relationship with Cerner, but I would say that Epic does the same thing now as well. So is the solution there, you got them very sickest patients and you kept them well, or was it that you got some patients who were sick and stopped them from being sicker? Um, it's both. And so 
the way we've historically looked at like a diabetic patient is that they're all the same and they're clearly not. It's the comorbidities, it's the socioeconomic issues. And what um, we were doing um, five plus years ago, we were um, hiring data scientists and this was under Dr. Sika's um, oversight. The platform of how you addressed people with the disease state, but then there were extra efforts and extra things that needed to be done um, that would move the dial. And so it was taking the sickest, and you were never going to be perfect, but if you could reduce the amount of readmissions and emergency room visits and be more timely about outreaches to that patient, it moved the dial. It was also trying to catch someone that was on the cusp of becoming a patient that had multiple comorbidities. It was quite powerful because you now could see graphically your entire population and where they sat on the continuum. And it afforded you an opportunity to take different, specific, unique strategies. And so it really touched everyone on the continuum, but it really focused on the sickest 2% and 10%. There were different strategies. That's where we really made significant progress. Well, I suppose you'll be gratified to know that an upcoming guest on this uh, podcast is Rishi Sika. That's awesome. I think you'll have a great conversation. He's uh, one of the sharpest guys I've had a chance to work alongside of. And uh, I think he's out in California on Sutter. Yeah, Yeah. Sutter. So I'm sure he's doing some cool stuff out there, and I'll be interested to hear what he's doing these days. He was a thought leader, and I'm sure he still is, and I'm sure he's doing some pretty cool stuff out there with uh, Sutter. Excellent. Well, Mike, I think that wraps up all the questions I have. Unless there's something you want to say, uh, we'll call it quits. No, I enjoyed it, and thank you for the conversation. Thank you.